FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today, all the way from the Bronx in New York City, is Dr. Maya Chatrit-Klein. She's an integrative paediatric neurologist with a medical degree from Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York City. She's board certified in adult and child neurology, as well as paediatrics. She completed the University of Arizona's two-year fellowship in integrative medicine, founded by Andrew Wheel, MD, and now serves as faculty. Dr. Shatrit Klein lectures internationally to medical professionals and lay people on environmental health and toxins and healing with food and nature. She lives with her family in New York City, where she now runs Brain Mending, her healing practice and urban farm. Dr. Maya Shatrit Klein, welcome so warmly to FX Medicine. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. You're just coming to your, into your spring over there now, aren't you? We are actually deep in summer Don't. <laughs> at the Whoops. moment. Very hot. Well, it's miserable here, so I want to come over there. <laughs> now, I've got to say, like what struck me when I first looked you up was how young you were. You've already accomplished a heck of a lot. Um, how on earth did you cope and why have you not got a life? <laughs> how did you cope with that study load? <laughs> I did. I had my children during my training. So when I was a medical student, I had my daughter, mm-hmm. who is my oldest. And then in my residency, my pediatrics residency, I had my son. And then in my neurology fellowship, I had my my uh, second son, my youngest. So um, I kind of did a little multitasking, <laughs> to put it mildly. Just and a I little. would definitely say I didn't not have too much of a life during those years. Um, But, you know, of course, I didn't know this at the time, um, but I've learned since how children are really incredible teachers um, to us. And so if you're available, you know, if you're not kind of interested in trying to fit them into what you want them to be, but you're interested in learning from your children, um, they're these, they're, they're, they're spiritual teachers, you know, and I feel like, you know, through my children, I've really learned a lot more about who I am and, and, uh, maybe more importantly, um, have learned a lot about how to help, um, other people, uh, as I've learned what they need. Yeah. That, that's pretty esoteric from a, a, for a pediatric neurologist. You, you must have been the outcast in your group. What's different about your upbringing? Like that's a that's got to say that like that's pretty far removed from most medical students that are into the science. What what's different about your upbringing that that you think differently? You know, I don't know if it has to do so much with upbringing. My mother still asks me when I'm gonna if I ever use all the information that I learned and am I ever gonna <laughs> am I ever gonna 
do what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, as opposed to what I am doing. Um, although I think now that I've published a book, she feels a little more she's secure a, she's in my, okay, in my right? way of practicing medicine. <laughs> you got to get a um, real job. <laughs> right, exactly. Somehow, like, being in the New York Times is, like, a helpful thing to be like, hey, mom, look at this. I'm really a real <laughs> professional, even though I'm not doing exactly what you thought. But, um, no, I don't, you know, I think it's just, it's just, um, I think I've always really been interested um, in kind of looking deeper and puzzle solving. And um, that was actually what drew me, I think, to neurology hmm. um, in a certain way, because neurology really is a lot about puzzle solving and looking at the whole body um, in order to kind of heal the brain, because the brain is we think of it as being kind of the top of the pyramid, but it's actually very much downstream in many ways to the health of the rest of the body. And certainly, you know, we're learning the gut um, yeah, has a lot of control over the brain. The immune system has a lot of control over the brain. So there's that component. And then, you know, I was always very interested as well in kind of this spiritual element. And I think, you know, it's true that I am quite different from other neurologists and I, Saying I'm the outcast would probably not be totally wrong either, um, professionally on that level, you know, because it is very different um, from how a lot of neurologists practice and think. But I do think a lot of neurologists are sort of interested in that um, dual, the dual nature of the brain, right? There's the physiology and there's sort of that um, emotional, spiritual mm -hmm. component as well. So, um, you know, I think I think it's all it's all there. It's just um, you know, some people make it, I think, a side interest, and and for me, it it was my primary. And and then pediatrics was was that the health issue with your own son that eventually led you to to actually practice functional approach? Um, the going into the pediatric component of neurology was really um, because children are are so plastic. You know, their brains are really very flexible. And um, I was so interested in in that element that, you know, health is not a static thing. It's not something which is set in stone. And I felt that looking at plasticity, neural plasticity, was a really beautiful way to, to um, explore that. And also I knew that parents will often do anything to help their children. So... I would spend more time really working as a team with parent and child and probably my recommendations would actually be carried out as opposed to a lot of times with adults, we put ourselves last. So, yeah. um, Women it, do. it was, you know, those were sort of what, what, <laughs> um, what drove me to, to investigate, um, and kind of study children. And I was fascinated with autism yeah. From from very early on in my medical studies. So um, those were kind of the things that took me in that direction. Later on, you know, when I had my son is when I really started to learn about the gut immune brain connection and how powerful food um, can be in terms of influencing our health. And uh, at the time, I think, I mean, functional medicine was not what it is today. I didn't even know about functional medicine. It was really, all of this was stuff that I learned really through the scientific literature and my own research um, on kind of food policy yeah. and 
um, when I was working with producers, farmers, et cetera. So I, I was delighted to discover functional medicine later, but um, you know, it was not such a big thing at that time. This is the thing that interests me is that those people that are willing to search the literature rather than just remaining within their box of practice, those people are the ones that go, oh my goodness, there is evidence for what I thought there was none. So I've got to ask this question. How do you as a doctor ratify the issues that you see every day in patients with the guidelines of medical practice on a population level, those black boxes of that is right and good practice and anything outside this box is bad. How do you, how do you well, work that one? For me, it was actually the more I understood about pharmaceuticals and how overused they are and how um, layered they are in terms of just, you know, polypharmacy, being on numerous medications, one for, you know, the problem, one for the side effects yeah. of that medication, one for the side effects of that medication, <laughs> um, you know, and, and kind of thinking about how all of this influences the developing brain that really uh, drove me to think about, A, the limitations of those medications and B, you know, what are we really doing um, in the long term to children's brains and bodies by um, giving all these pharmaceuticals. We're not all that good in medicine at thinking about, uh, we are good at short-term solutions, but not very good at kind of long-term consequences. Mm. And um, so for me, I actually felt almost the opposite as far as whatever these black boxes were. I felt, well, if my approach is low risk, and potentially high yield, maybe even higher yield, right, than giving medications to suppress symptoms, but really helping the body and the brain on, on many levels and getting to the root cause of the problem, then um, I'm really doing the safer thing, you know, as yeah. opposed to something kind of off, uh, out of the box. So, um, you know, I think it's just a, an issue of perspective. I think uh, I think that children who are are looking at diet, you know, or are changing diet and who are being, you know, getting different nutrition and maybe are on botanicals are, are, they're working with someone who knows what they're doing and who understands that children don't need to be on, you know, 25 different things four times a day, mm. but are, are very careful and precise with what they use and trust the body to learn to heal. You know, you can actually have a much lower, uh, risk, you know, and a, and a high chance of potentially reversing a lot of other problems that child may have. Yeah. I think it's a concept that stuns me um, as a registered nurse. And, and I've got to say one who used to absolutely poo-poo anything to do with complementary medicine. I was them. I was the total opposite of what I am now. Mm -hmm. So I'm a turncoat. But um, what I just don't understand is given that you've got any medical condition, and I was... I was speaking with somebody yesterday about rheumatoid arthritis, where it's medically accepted that the ex expectations of treatment fall short of what they'd really like. Um, given any medical condition where your expectations of healing fall short of well, of good, would it not seem medically prudent to investigate something that shows at least that it's safe and may or may not work? Wouldn't it seem medically prudent to investigate something like that for your patients? This is what I don't understand. Why aren't more doctors doing things like you? 
who are saying, well, what we got doesn't work, not very well. Why don't we try this stuff? What's that medical paradigm? Is it wait till somebody else does the research? You know, I think there are a few things. I think doctors as a, and nurses, for that matter, yeah. oh, um, as a group, are are fairly conservative. Um, so I think there's that. You know, the, you know, I I, came, I got into medical school, um, you know, as a as an English major in college, and wrote about you know uh, a special that we had here called Bill Moore, you know, Bill Moyer's healing. And the mind, which was about, you know, things like psychoneuroimmunology, you know, this was right. like 20 years ago. Yeah. And, um, this is in high school. You know, so they somehow let me in. I don't even know how, but most people <laughs> are pretty straight when they go to medical yeah. school or nursing school. Yeah. Um, so I think there's that. It's just naturally, you know, doctors are, most doctors are, are not real risk takers. Um, I think that um, we're taught a very pharmaceutical model. Um, because a lot of the research is sponsored by pharmaceuticals, a lot of the, um, you know, lunches and different things. I mean, ph- pharmaceutical companies are very enmeshed in the medical education system from, you know, A to Z. Yeah. So I think there's that the value of pharma is is really highlighted and that's kind of like ingrained. Um, I think that um, stepping outside the box for these people who are conservative is Scary because there's sort of a threat if you say or do the wrong thing, will you end up getting in trouble with your license? And and that's a thing that doctors yeah. will use against each other all the time. You know, oh, like this person is doing X, Y, Z, you should report them. And that's like, you know, something I think that people worry about because here, you know, doctors go, can often go into tremendous debt in order to go to medical school and get through all the many years of training. Um, it's not particularly subsidized. And so people feel like they could lose their livelihood. Right. So there are a lot of these different elements. And, and then there's the insurance system. We don't have socialized medicine. Um, and, and even when there is socialized medicine, you know, because I was just in England recently and we were talking about it, there's a model of you have, you know, what, eight minutes with a patient, mm. 10 minutes with a patient maximum. And so how can you really have the kind of conversations, you know, where you really explore what's going on in their lifestyle and give them nutrition counseling and really talk about the big picture? Because it's really talking about the physical, right, things that you're eating and the things that you're doing and what's happening in the body. You're talking about emotional things because those things play a role. And you can be talking about spiritual things. I mean, there are many layers. And I feel like, you know, when I sit and really talk to patients, sometimes I discover that the problem with a child who's not getting better is sometimes really going on with the parents. And that if I sit and speak with the parents and we kind of get to the bottom of that, it opens certain doors that then allow the child to have more healing. So this is something which you have to have time, Mm. you know, to do. I'm not sure that my point is, I, I don't want to throw doctors under the bus because I think there are some people who are very, very, very rigid but I also think we've created a, a paradigm that makes it very difficult for people to step outside the box. Yeah, yeah. I remember one doctor ta- talking about his practice before he embraced integrative medicine as being hamster medicine, where he'd go to work, run on the treadmill, come home, <laughs> sleep, mm-hmm. <laughs> go to work, run on the yeah. treadmill, you know, run on the wheel. Um, 
Yeah. My wife has got, uh, she's a, a teacher's aide and she's got this incredible knack to connect with behavioural disordered kids, so like, you know, the ASD, ADHD, even just mm-hmm. behavioural issues. But the thing that I love about Lee is that she's got this incredible empathy and incredible ability to connect by, she she doesn't Nancy around, but she always treats them as a as a person, as a worthwhile person, and she hones in on their skills. What can they do? What are they good at? Whereas a normal education system just goes, you need to do this our way. You need to work how we work. What what is the if you like the power of doing this, and why aren't more people doing it? Well, again, I think our education system is very regimented, um, and this is. Certainly true in the U.S., and I think it's actually true in a lot of in a lot of countries mm. that there are certain expectations. You know, children are all supposed to reach certain milestones at certain times, and um, and we treat the children who haven't made it there yet as um, being kind of defective, and we have to focus our attention on how to uh, how to deal with their problems so that they can be, you know, normal like the other kids. And instead of really looking at each child as an individual um, that has maybe uneven skills, maybe they're going to, you know, mature at different points. Uh, Some kids, Mm. you know, like to read. And even in my own children, you know, one of my kids started to love, started to read when she was three and was a avid reader from that moment on. Another one of my children, you know, kind of got into reading a little later, maybe at like, six or seven. Another one of my kids didn't really like to read that much until he turned nine and then suddenly became a very, very focused reader. Um, He actually has fantastic vision. I wonder if his, you know, spending time running around outside, not reading as much, you know, actually helped that. I mean, the point I I make is who wants to spend all their time focusing on what they're not good at? It really destroys self-esteem. It makes kids feel less than, and, and the truth is that when you focus on their gifts and what they are good at, then, um, you know, sometimes it can motivate them to work on the other, um, you know, kind of areas of, of weakness, if you would call it that. Um, so I think there are a lot of, you know, these kids who are in physical therapy, occupational therapy, ABA, you know, all these different kinds of, of therapies, um, I, I wish there were a way to focus more on on what what lights them up. Yeah. You know, because I think though that is really the, the the key is is to light them up and help them feel passionate about something. So yeah. it sounds like your wife is doing that, which is incredible. Oh yeah, she's absolutely incredible. Um I, I think it's um notable that you went through medicine at the Albert Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Albert Einstein himself was a poor student, was told that he was a poor student and would never amount to anything and had little filters and he would today definitely fit on that spectrum, quote unquote. Um, And so my, I guess, rhetorical question is, how many Einsteins are we losing because we want these people to fit into the box? How many of them? But I've got to ask, are we, you know, it's often touted that, you know, autism is on the rise. Are we really seeing more behavioural issues in kids or are we, are they just sticking out because of awareness or even miscategorization? You know, I think it's, there's sort of a, um, 
there are two things happening. On the one hand, I do think that there is an increase in in autism. And um, even if we account for better diagnosis, right. um, you know, there have been studies that have, have shown that that would only account for 60% of the increase. Right. So it doesn't account for it all. And in addition to that, I think we're, we are actually pathologizing, you know, many kids who are normal, yes. where we're calling them ADHD. Yes. You know, some of these kids, if they didn't have to sit in a classroom all day long without moving very much and they got to go outside a lot more and they didn't have homework at the end of the day, you know, we have five-year-olds who come home from school and they have, it might not be a huge amount of homework, but, you know, a few, a couple sheets or three sheets of homework um, for a five-year-old, a, ch- a five-year-old child, there's absolutely no evidence mm. that homework is, is actually productive or, or beneficial for children that are under middle school age. So like until you're about in the sixth grade, there's absolutely no evidence it's even beneficial. But here we are asking children, sit all day long, don't move around, don't fiddle around, don't be distracting, you know, and, and don't run around outside, right? Because we've really cut that back. And then we try to keep them occupied in the afternoon. A lot of children are also beyond the homework that they're overscheduled with different activities. And, you know, at a certain point in time, we really have to ask ourselves, you know, do children just need a lot more time outdoors and a lot less, you know, maybe they'll learn more if they are curious and develop that curiosity and exploration on their own rather than having us cramming it down their throat. So I think there's a dual issue here. On the one hand, we are seeing more neurodevelopmental issues that are are real. Um, You know, we don't have an elderly population with one in 68 people that have autism, mm, mm. you know? Um, so we know that generation is, doesn't exist. So we know that the kids who are, we're seeing very disabled kids. It's not something you can ignore. Um, so something's going on there. Mm. But on the other side of it, you know, we have to ask ourselves, could we be, could we help reverse some of the, you know, kinds of issues we're seeing simply by, by freeing children up and allowing them, you know, more more independent time, more activity, more running around outside, more freedom. Indeed, part of that getting outside and exploring the world is to do with your speciality, which is the Dirt Cure. And I'll attention our listeners to dirtcure.com, which is your website, and they can buy your book called Dirt there. And this gels totally with the hygiene hypothesis that we need to be exposed to a wider variety of, of bugs, basically, to help prime our immune system and get used to it, and that that can have good effects on not just immune system, but also behavioural issues. So I guess we need to explore this. Why did we get too clean? Why are we on the one hand so fearful of germs, yet so accepting of foods like yogurts and sauerkraut and probiotics, and yet they're germs? <laughs> We're like, you know, what's happening with us that we want to become too clean or so clean? I would say this. When we first learned about germs, Okay, which was with Louis Pasteur, um, you know, who sort of the father of the germ theory. Um, There was a, uh, you know, we learned suddenly that there were these invisible organisms that could actually uh, multiply in our bodies to the point that they could kill us, take over and kill us. 
And that was obviously pretty terrifying to people. But we also, at that time, I think, felt um, that they finally understood the cause of so many diseases. And, and in, in understanding germ theory, you know, led to things like hand washing, you know, which actually saved countless lives. Yeah, similar um, But at that time, um, it also, everything that had any bacteria in it were considered contaminated. So in, in that time, yogurt, uh, sourdough bread, I mean, these were things which were off the table. They, there wasn't just a, it wasn't just about germs, but it was about any, you know, microbe um, was, was, was a, considered a contaminated element um, or contaminating element. And yeah. so actually, at the time when we first started to understand this, everything, all those things were considered bad. And slowly, as we've understood about the gut microbiome, um, we're starting to understand again, oh, yogurt is helpful. Fermented foods are important. When we sour breads and, you know, we ferment things or sour things and they break down things, it's actually beneficial for our digestion and for our microbiome. So we're actually learning, um, we're, we're relearning what we have forgotten. I think, you know, a few generations ago. Um, but, you know, I think we're also starting to understand, right? We know about the microbiome and the bacteria and how they can be beneficial and make up up to three to five pounds of our, of our body weight. But in addition to that, we're learning about the microvirome and how viruses can actually take over for bacteria yes. in the gut and help protect us in that way. And even the microbiome, how fungi are critically important in our gut um, microbial community. So, uh, you know, I think we're we're in the process really of relearning things that were a part of our culture really forever until we made this fantastic scientific discovery, which both helped us and hurt us. I think it's really interesting that um, Eli Mechnikoff, often touted as the father of, of probiotics, um, wanted to use probiotics not for immune health. He wanted to use it for um, uh, dementia, for longevity. Um, it was really interesting when I was looking into it. It was, it was not what we thought it was for. Um, so it seems like we're, we're coming back to home almost with Eli Meshnikov. Right. Well, exactly. And yet, you know, he was not considered uh, uh, by many, you know, he was, he was considered to be, you know, kind of crazy mm. oh, well. <laughs> at that time. And yet we now have great data that, you know, yes, there's, there's a whole category of organisms that are really psychobiotic yeah. and affect us, affect our mood, affect our brain function, affect our, you know, our cognition. Isn't it interesting that there's a fine line between those people who are really crazy and, and those geniuses that make groundbreaking discoveries, but dogma and very often medical dogma. Uh, you mentioned hand washing before. Look at Semmelweis; he was basically laughed at. Mm -hmm. um, it just seems that there's mm -hmm. such dogma there for anything new. It really interests me. But anyway, when you when you're looking at the hygiene theory, and, and uh, you know, some people sort of say, "Oh, you know," but it doesn't really have the legs. We need to sort of um, expand on the hygiene hypothesis and look at the old friends theory and things like this. So. I remember looking into this TH1, TH2 theory that was initially proposed by a Sydney scientist um, called Dunstan. 
Um, and it was this seesaw mm-hmm. effect, but it's simple. It, it, it's expanded from there. We've got swings and roundabouts now. It's not just a seesaw. Mm-hmm. I guess my question is, how do you how do you teach people about getting back into dirt, getting back into not being filthy, but dirty, <laughs> if I can use that term. Right. When I talk about dirt, I'm talking about three things. I'm talking about microbes and germs. Um, I'm talking about eating fresh food from healthy soil. Yeah. I'm talking about getting outdoors into nature. And all of those different elements are kind of part of what dirt is. Actually, I think my the UK version um, uh, of the book is is about the, it's sort of they focused on the gut and not dirt. They said dirt they didn't think was a nice word. It's called <laughs> uh, healthy food, yeah. healthy gut, happy child because they didn't want the word dirt in it. But um, but They're British, said, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, but you know what I what I found was um, it's you know we've really become sanitized. We sanitize um, our children's bodies with um, you know things like antibiotics all the time, with hand sanitizer. We sanitize our homes with bleach. Um, we sanitize our our um, our lives by not going outdoors. Kids are on screens so much more, and they're not getting outside and getting dirty in that way. Um, you know, it's it's actually we've become. You know, we even sanitize our food and our soil. You know, by mm-hmm. using things like pesticides. Yeah. So yeah. we've really we've really gotten to a point where we are avoiding. We think we've kind of found the answer, which is avoiding. And what we learned, you know, as you were discussing with the hygiene hypothesis. It, it was actually, um, you know, so originally the hygiene hypothesis for people who don't know uh, was exploring this idea that children who grow up on farms had fewer allergies and, and uh, you know, even autoimmune conditions as compared to children who didn't grow up on farms. And so people thought, well, it's because they're too clean in the cities and, and so they're dirtier on farms. And and they said, well, that's because there are more bacteria um, on farms. And so someone actually, researchers actually went and measured this. They said, okay, we're comparing an urban apartment um, and the number of bacteria there to the number of bacteria in a farm. And what they found was that there weren't more bacteria in total on the farm, but there was a very big difference. And that was the diversity of bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. So the farm had many, many more types. And I think what we're coming to now is that um, biodiversity of organisms, biodiversity of food, um, also are the things that actually create um, health for our bodies and resilience for our bodies. It's really something very much about being exposed to many, many, many organisms. Yeah. And the reason that I am so particular about saying we need to get outside, we need to focus on soil, we need to kind of get our hands in the dirt, we need to be eating foods that are grown in in soil that's healthy and that are, is being treated as, as kind of the source um, and really paid attention to is because in one teaspoon of soil, there are as many organisms as there are people on the planet. Mm. And this is the it's thing that... tremendously biodiverse. Oh, absolutely. And this is the thing that really gets me is, um, you know, you need to get across this concept of I'm not saying you particularly, but we as health practitioners need to get this across this concept of we're not talking about being filthy or fetid or unhygienic, if you like. But what we're talking about is 
embracing germs which are all around us, which float in the air. We breathe them in. They have, we have them on their skin. So we need to be aware that these aren't going to kill us unless there's unless you set up a terrain where they can take, um, where one pathogenic organism that has a lot of virulence can get in there and really take up residence. And uh, indeed, when we have a, a greater array of microbial diversity, that's a bit of a tautology, but um, when we have a greater diversity, that that can actually be a defense mechanism against one organism being the the bad guy. Right. Well, so it's sort of like it's it, having a, a n- number of different organisms prevents any one organism from growing out of control. Yeah. That's the main point, because many organisms that are problems for our bodies um, are organisms that we actually are pretty familiar with and our bodies kind of know what to do with. Um, they're not necessarily something we've never seen before, um, but it has to do with it has to do with actually having uh, having a very, as you say, a very healthy terrain, a very healthy um, and biodiverse terrain that um, re- helps regulate the immune system. Also, because a huge problem that we've developed is actually not even just uh, infection, but autoimmune disease is has become a huge problem, and not just for for adults, but also now for children. Yeah. We're seeing diabetes, Crohn's disease, colitis, um, lupus. All of these conditions are 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 uh, increasing every year in children. So something is happening in the body which is actually, uh, you know, threatening the body um, because the immune system is is quite dysfunctional. Yeah. So we want to actually stimulate the immune system in good ways, and the more we sanitize, the more the immune system kind of becomes paranoid and really will attack the body as opposed to kind of being very social with the different organisms and compounds that are coming through um, the gut and are coming in contact with the skin, you know, and in the nose and the mouth all the time. Yeah. One of the priming um, T helper cells um, with regards to autoimmune disease is TH17, and there's some really interesting work by Dan Littman and Ivalio Ivanov. There's others as well. He's the, or they, are basically the, let's say the grandfathers of um, segmented filamentous bacteria. This is SFBs that are sort of related to Clostridiae, but they, they're sort of like a, what do they call them? A, a symbiont, where... If you wipe out mm-hmm. the good guys, they'll they'll run away with TH17 and they'll prime you for autoimmune diseases. So the whole thing is, if you have a nice, robust array of healthy bacteria in your gut, and indeed vi- the viruses and fungi as well, um, that they actually stimulate a robust immune response instead. So you have a healthy immune system. So I, I wonder about the problem with the hygiene hypothesis not working is that we say, yeah, let's get lots of bugs, but let's also kill them with antibiotics. So, so we, 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 we wipe out any sort of chance of having this broad array of bacteria with our modern lifestyle. So I guess what I'm asking is, where do you see this sort of stuff fitting in with these rises in ASD, autism, lupus? juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, all of these sorts of issues that we're seeing now? Well, I think, first of all, that, um, <clears throat> you know, I think, and I, and I want to actually say, you know, the problem with, with doing a lot of the antibiotics, um, which I think is, is something even that uh, integrative practitioners and functional medicine practitioners can be guilty of, 
really like thinking, okay, this is the only way that we can deal with this problem. And we have to use, uh, you know, antibiotics and sometimes for a very long time, you know, which can actually in the short term be helpful, but in the long term um, be incredibly disruptive. And I see that actually not infrequently. Um, But, you know, I think, I think um, there's not a concept um, in, in medicine, particularly of how do we support the immune system beyond, let's say maybe now probiotics, we're starting to understand that. Um, But there are a lot of things that I discuss in the book, for instance, um, you know, certain things like uh, cholesterol and, and it's fat, yeah. which we've become pretty obsessed with, right? That like egg yolks are, are bad, butter is bad, um, fat, you know, many fats are, are bad. The only good fat in the whole world is olive oil. <laughs> no other good fat. <laughs> no other. Um, you know, and animal fats are terrible. But, but really, um, you know, there's such interesting data that I explored um, and wrote about with things like um, with cholesterol, for instance, which, you know, obviously we can get from things like liver and egg yolk, that actually cholesterol is associated with lower, um, lower uh, rates of infection in children. And I cite all of these studies in the book. Um, also that, uh, that it's associated with longevity. Mm. Higher cholesterol is associated with longevity. So here we've been spending a lot. It's associated also with better cognition, I mean, on the side, but it's also quite important. So here we have been doing all these things to kind of uh, drive down our our uh, consumption of, of fats and especially of egg yolks. And I saw parents who come to me saying, oh, well, I only give my child an egg white omelet because I don't yeah. want them to have too much cholesterol. And I, and I say, oh, my gosh, so you have to give them the whole egg and the egg yolk is critically important. You know, all of these things are, are um, you know, even omega-3s, right? We're learning about the how, you know, and this is not the new news of omega-3s and omega-6s, but for some people it still is that, you know, these essential fatty acids actually help to balance the immune system, whether it's going to be inflammatory or whether it's not going to be inflammatory. So all of these different components in what we're eating um, are critically important. I talk about things like elderberry syrup. So yeah. there are plants that that we can eat, either tea, certain kinds of teas, or things like you know elderberry. I think is a great example because it's easy to grow. It's you know delicious. The syrup is something even kids enjoy, it's and it's something which actually has been shown in studies to um, to actually kill flu virus. Yeah. Influenza virus in in um, you know in vitro. So so I feel like you know when I think about you know what are we doing to support the immune system? It's sort of we we're really um, you know it's not that we're just saying use fewer antibiotics or try not to use antibiotics, but there are things that we can be doing every single day that are not unpleasant but that are actually pleasurable and that can actually boost immune function all, you know, all day, every day, so that we're not going to run into these kinds of problems at all. So I wonder, like, I wonder if most of the problem, I've got to say, is that we're just getting so far away from food and that what we 
look at and call food is just this alien substance that is no longer relative to anything that we used to grow 40, 50, 60, 100 years ago. I wonder if that's like a really huge bit of our problem. I, I just wanted to also mention there's good news about butter. There's there's a a recent, yeah, you're going to love this. There's a recent article. It was published uh, June 29, 2016 in PLOS One. Is butter back? Question mark. A systematic review and meta-analysis of butter consumption and risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes and total mortality by Laura Limpen et al. So you're going to love that one. (laughs) Yay. There's somebody winning on the horizon. But I've got to ask the question, Dr. Meyer, How do you teach your patients who are coming to you with behavioural disorders? They're they're usually at the end of their tether. They're stressed. They want answers. They want changes. How do you teach them that part of this is what we eat and that we need to do things differently? And this is what to do. How do you teach them and what do you teach them to do? Do you talk to them about like growing a vegetable patch in their backyard or... What sort of things do you talk to them? I mean, about? I love that. You know, that's not usually the first thing on someone's mind when they come in with a child who's in crisis is, oh, let me run out to the backyard and grow, <laughs> you know, vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that may not be recommendation number one, although it probably should be because that's a very, you know, it's a great way to in- improve your microbiome. It's a good way of getting connected with kind of nature, being outside. And there's, of course, all kinds of data about, um, you know, relaxation, about better mood, better sleep, and, um, you know, better, even better focus and attention when yeah. people are outdoors and, and in nature. But yeah. if someone come into my office in crisis, you know, the things that we're going to talk about are going to be, on the one hand, and I always try to really explain this, there's two kind of, there's two aspects to what we're, how we're going to make our treatment plan. On the one hand, we might do some things that are going to target symptoms directly. So I might say, you know, if your child's not sleeping or really anxious, you know, we might say like, okay, we're going to give this child magnesium in the short term, you know, at least to help really address those kinds of symptoms and calm things down. It doesn't mean that's what they're going to have to do forever, but like there are certain things we might be doing right now. But on the other side of it, talking about the food and changing the diet, what I explain is that's really about looking at root cause and that we can't, no matter what we do, we can't really, um, you know, deal with the problem if we're not looking at the most foundational issue, which mm. is what you're putting into your body. And otherwise, all we're going to be doing is trying to take buckets of water off the Titanic. You know, yeah. it's not a way to, it's not a way to really heal. And that's what, you know, if someone's coming to see me, then most of the time they're really thinking in terms of, of they really want to reverse their problem and as much as possible. It's not always a guarantee, but certainly I think that there's a guarantee that, you know, I would say almost always we can at least see a tremendous improvement in function no matter what. And, and sometimes, you know, total elimination of symptoms and reversal of disease as well. And I've seen it many, many times in things that no one would imagine they would see it. So, you know, if I can establish rapport with my patients, then I'm also going to be talking about how they're going to clean up their diet. So we talk about like food chemicals, the top five, you know, MSG, aspartame, um, or NutraSweet, 
uh, food dyes, preservatives, and high fructose corn syrup. And that is, you know, this is something I outline in great depth in the book, the science behind it, so that if you have a, you know, a doctor or a spouse or a grandmother or a teacher who's, you know, skeptical that my book has over 700 scientific references. So there can be no question that there's science behind, you know, some of these recommendations. So number one is detox the diet. Number two is what are we going to put into the diet? Um, Or really number two is looking at if there's anything that the child might be reacting to. And that could be dairy, it could be, um, you know, wheat or gluten. It could be eggs in some cases, unfortunately. Mm. Um, It can be, um, you know, it can be citrus, it can be nuts. There's a lot of possibilities. And so we kind of investigate that. I don't remove any more foods than I absolutely have to in, um, in order to see improvement. So I don't just take someone off of gluten because I don't think gluten is good, quote unquote. I think if a person is able to tolerate grains, You know, there are certain ways that it's better to eat them. I go into that in the book, and I talked about it a little earlier, things like sourdough or sprouting the breads or um, sprouting, you know, whatever seeds you might be using. But I still think that there's value for a child, and I don't like to put kids on incredibly restrictive diets as long as they're whole, fresh foods. Um, So that's sort of phase two. And phase three is infusing that child, really giving them nutrient-dense foods so that their body has the tools that they need. And where I start there is, where is the food coming from? Is it coming from animals that are pastured? You know, if if you're getting, if you're eating animals or animal products, you want to know these animals are being fed things that are healthy, that they're outside, that they're getting exposed to sunlight, that they're living as they're meant to live, um, because there's a lot of benefits to that. Making sure that you're eating healthy fruits and vegetables that are as fresh as possible, that are grown in healthy soil, that are not covered in pesticides or herbicides. And, um, you know, drinking things like teas, um, drinking things uh, that are are nourishing and not just fillers. So um, eating plenty of fat, which we discussed. So all of these kinds of things, um, eat, drink, if you're having sweeteners, using things like honey or maple syrup or date sugar or things which are um, that actually have uh, blackstrap molasses is another one. Molasses is... Yeah actually quite nutrient dense. So these are the kinds of things that we're talking about. And it's not all in one visit that we necessarily are talking about these things because, you know, sometimes we just have to start with, why don't you start by looking at the ingredients, you know, look at the labels of the food that you have in your own house. Cause some people are, are not ready to start talking about blackstrap molasses on day number one, you know? Yeah. Um, I was just going to add in there too, about what do you, do you teach your, your patients about, um, if they do have a garden at home and they're going to pull up the carrots or pick the radish, um, pull up the radishes or pick the beans, about you know you don't need to brush them until they're white, <laughs> or you know that we certainly need to clean most of the dirt off. But I remember when I was a child, you know, the radishes would never make it to the dinner table. We would eat them on the way back up from the veggie garden. Beans were eaten there and then; they were done. We'd never, we'd never get them to the dinner table. Um, and same with carrots. We'd leave some of the dirt in the little folds of the, the you know, where the roots stick out of the carrots. Um, not, not by design. We'd just wash them roughly, if you like. Do you teach your patients about this, that dirt is not this thing to be paranoid about, that we can actually handle it and that it actually might be good for us for, for immune priming? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, it's funny because people are so nervous about dirt that they'll even, and this is not, I'm not going to say this is not valid. It's 
an issue. But, you know, if I say something about being in the dirt, inevitably someone will say, well, it could be contaminated with lead or it could have <laughs> parasites in it, you know. And of course, that's true. And, you know, obviously, if you're you're you know, if you're just moving into a place or you're going somewhere, you know, you're concerned. I mean, we always test the soil and get lead levels, you know, look for that if that's if that's a concern. And, you know, I think it's worth it. When I start a vegetable garden, I get the soil tested um, because, you know, I, I want to know what I need to do for my soil. And just because there are metals and it doesn't mean there aren't ways to pull those things out. But that said, um, we do tend to feel, I think we've been conditioned to feel very fearful of, of soil. Mm. And, um, and so I do encourage people to, you know, look, I don't think eating big mouthfuls of dirt is necessarily, That's cool you know, what we need to be doing. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> right. So that's not the goal here. But the goal is to, um, you know, get those traces of microbes. So, you know, you might rinse off the carrot, but you don't have to go crazy yeah. getting it perfect. And, you know, we're, we're eating most of the time power washed vegetables coated in wax mm. at the grocery store. Yes, yeah. I've got to ask then, when you're talking about all of these different things to do with, you know, behavioral disorders and, and people that have got serious issues, um, is it like an all or none principle you either do it or you don't or can people say well look you know i can do this i can handle doing that do you get uh results by degrees or do you have to do the whole good way of living and that's the only way to get results uh you know i think we have uh, if you're very type a you know it feels like all or nothing yeah. um and and yet i absolutely think it's sometimes small changes are, are dramatic enough to reverse um to reverse can uh, conditions that that can be very very problematic. I've had kids who have come to my office. I had a set of twins who both had uh, absence seizures, where they would just have these staring spells during the day. It's very short, you know. It wasn't dangerous, but obviously it wasn't great for their learning. And um, I took them. I think we had got both of them off of dairy, and they were not eating well. Like they only ate each of them only three or four foods. We just got them eating more diverse foods. Um, you know, slowly, and we got them off of the food, you know, which was dairy that they were reacting to, and their seizures completely went away on with no medication at all. Wow. Um, that's how dramatic it is. It wasn't, they weren't, you know, they weren't living in a rural environment where they were, you know, growing their own food and being self-sustainable. They didn't, you know, I think she really cleaned up the diet. I do think that food chemicals for kids who are sensitive can be really quite toxic. And so it's important to look at that because sometimes just cleaning up the diet, taking out those food chemicals. And, you know, I go through it in the book. It's not so difficult. Um, can actually be dramatic enough to reverse things like ticks or headaches, um, chronic headaches, you know, or even ADHD type symptoms. So I, I think, you know, there's, you don't know what's going to be the thing that's going to make that dramatic difference for your child. So you do it in a stepwise manner. That's mm. why I was saying before, you don't do everything all at one time. We do it as we go. And the truth is that most times I'm not pushing parents to do more. They are, they are doing it of their own accord because they start to see the kinds of improvements in their children, these dramatic improvements, and they want to see more. And a lot of times I'm seeing in my own health, I'm better. Mm. You know, my, my other child is doing better. You know, this year, every year we get the, the flu where we're all knocked out with a, you know, gastric, you know, infection. 
this year, no, this year we were all great. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it becomes kind of a positive feedback loop, if you will, where you start to see the improvement. I always say, I'm going to give you some advice, but I'm not going to force you to maintain it. Once you see the benefits, you're going to want to maintain it. Yeah. Yeah. There's more and more research coming out now that shows the facility of using selected nutrients with pharmaceutical medications where those pharmaceutical medications aren't getting the results that they want out of those. Like, for instance, zinc with antidepressants. And we certainly know about the issue with antidepressants in kids. We, you know, There's a lot of issues with that. But do you find sure. that selected nutrients are helping the pharmaceutical medications to work until a stage where, they, where you might be able to take them off those? Or do you find that it's a, a dietary-driven sort of thing, that that's the major primer or that's the major factor in getting people off pharmaceutical medications? Well... I mean, I certainly think there are medications um, that are involved with depleting nutrients. That's for oh, certain. Absolutely. Um, you know, we we know that, you know, not in children typically, but like with, you know, the cholesterol medications, for instance, you know, that, that we see numerous different nutrients drop or, or if someone's on, um, if someone's on, uh, uh, you know, certain kinds of acid blockers, mm. right? The H2 blockers mm. for things like reflux, which babies can be taking. They're on it for chronic periods. It can actually, that you can see lower levels of a lot of different uh, nutrients, particularly minerals. So um, certainly there's that element. But, you know, I would say this, um, there are times, uh, you know, while I always do prefer um, using foods over, over supplements, there are times where giving something like magnesium or zinc or B complex um, or fish oil or a probiotic um, can be so dramatic um, and and make such an impact that I think it's certainly worth it. And I actually think uh, many times I don't need to write a prescription for medication. It's actually rare mm. that I write prescriptions for medication. Um, so. My patients come to me on medications and I'm helping them over time to wean off the medication. Um, or if we've tried everything, 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 you know, they might need, and we feel like, okay, we're at a place where we want to, you know, use medication, but it's, it's rare. I would say like, I mean, the number of prescriptions I write per month is, is absolutely minuscule. Right. Um, so I don't think they're absolutely necessary. And I think that nutrients are, are, uh, really can can replace what what uh, kind of and 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 negate the need for pharmaceuticals altogether um, in certain cases mm. what about just as a closing question what about our withdrawal from nature and how do you get kids to play again you know particularly in in the the era of the the xbox and the the ps3 and all of that sort of thing how do you get kids to reconnect with playing outside and getting active? I think children naturally do know what to do and do know how to play. Um, We need to, number one, um, encourage, we need to really, I don't even want to say encourage, but um, get involved with schools and uh, work on ways to bring um, nature curriculums into the schools, getting kids outdoors for more time each day. 
um, because kids are spending much of their day in school. So that's number one is, you know, you're putting your child in school from whatever it is, maybe 8.30 to 3.30, then, you know, they should be getting outdoors for a few hours if the weather allows. And, yeah. um, you know, there's a, there's been a lot of data looking at eyesight and that children who are being exposed to natural light have a much lower risk of developing nearsightedness. And the authors in these studies we're talking about spending three hours a day outdoors. Mm. So let's even think about, you know, what the long-term effects are in that way. That's one thing. At home, I think very much limiting screen time. And that takes real discipline, not just in terms of saying no, you know, and setting things aside, but also getting off screens ourselves as parents and yep. adults, you know, yep. not, not how we model Getting outside ourselves and spending time with our children, I think, is very helpful. So putting the phone away or putting the iPad away or whatever screen it might be and really getting outside and doing, you know, doing outdoor things together, whether it be playing sports together or gardening or going hiking. And, you know, I even talk a little bit about, um, you know, there are apps. If you if you have, let's say, a teen and they're really against going outside, you can find apps where you can you know, identify birds or there's, um, you know, different things where you can actually do these like treasure hunts hmm. um, and, and, and search for things that are, you know, something called geocaching, which is a, a kind of international, you know, scavenger hunt in a sense. And there are, it's on, you know, there's a, there's an app for the phone that tells you, you know, where there might be little treasure and their little you know, it's like a little ball or a little note or yep. whatever, but it's kind of a fun thing. So there's a lot of ways, I think, to get kids outdoor. You just have to be willing to go with them and you have to be tenacious and you have to be creative, but everyone in the family will benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would attention our listeners from around the world. So you've got on your website, dirtcure.com, um, and it's called yeah. The Dirt Cure, the book. But as you say, in the UK, it's called Healthy Food, Healthy Gut, Happy Child. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So I would definitely attention our, our listeners to look at your site, dirtcure.com, and really embrace that sort of uh, approach because it's really what we need to do to get back to how we were supposed to be on this planet, which is quite stunning to me. But anyway, <laughs> I've got to say, I really do applaud what you do. And I like, you must be an amazing sort of practitioner, really, to, to be so well endowed with pediatric neurologist you know i mean that's a pretty hardcore um academic ability ap academic attainment and yet to embrace nature and getting back to our behaviors of what we were supposed to be it's really quite something to do so well done to you thank you very much this is fx medicine and i'm andrew whitfield cook this podcast was proudly brought to you by the baby maker program with stacy roberts